Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, hello everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network Jewish Studies channel. I'm your host, Dro Ra Rusi, Senior Director of the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. At the American Sephardi Federation, we try to see beyond the Ashkenormative world and glimpse into the greater Jewish mosaic. Today, we're really delighted to speak with Michael Frank. Michael Frank is the author of The Mighty Franks, the winner of the 2018 Jewish Quarterly Wingate Prize and a Barnes and Noble Discover Great New Writers selection. His essays, articles, and short stories have appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, Slate, the Yale Review, and it continues on. So I'm just gonna stop here. He lives with his family in New York City and Liguria, Italy. Today, we'll be speaking about his book, 100 Saturdays, Stella Levy and the Search for a Lost World, published in 2022 by Avid Readers Press, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. Now, this book is a bit beyond the normal scope of the Jewish Studies channel in that it's not an academic book per se, yet it covers a lost world that is not overly explored in English language academic writings. So welcome, Michael, and we'll talk a little bit about why it's so important to include this book as well. Thank you for joining us today. Um, thank you, you thank you, thank you for having me. I'm so pleased to be here. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, other than what I just said? <laughs> <laughs> you did a great job. Thank um, you. <laughs> I am a writer. I write memoir and fiction, and uh, and this is an unusual book for me. I will I will say um, I think of it as an encounter. That's how I like to talk about it or begin to talk about it. It's. It's, uh, it, I had an encounter with a remarkable human being and wrote a book that I hope feels like my encounter with her and her very special story. Um, and I say this, I choose this word carefully after having talked about it a little bit and having had so many readers respond to the book because uh, Stella Levy, who is the subject of the book, um, whose stories I retell in the book, told me the story of her life over more than six years. I think of her as a modern day Scheherazade. I went to her apartment one day with one question, basically, and she started telling me stories and took six years to finish <laughs> and come to the end. And she still hasn't come to the end because I still see her and she's still telling me stories. And so I very much wanted to give um, the reader a sense of the experience I had, which was, uh, Sometimes I like to describe the book as a slow book, not in the sense that it's slow to read. In fact, it's not because it's, it's broken up. Definitely into those not. I can say that after having hundred chapters. <laughs> but it's like slow food. It was slow to make. It was slow to cook, and and I wanted to try to give a sense of that to the reader, um, and I hope I have. Definitely. I mean, I I do feel myself being drawn into the different places where she was. Um, and is, so uh, thank right. you for that. So before we started this interview formally, we were talking a bit and talking about your last name, which doesn't come across as if you're from Rhodes or from the Sparty world. What drew you to write about this? Well, that's for sure. I'm uh, by background and family, an, an Ashkenazi Jew. I grew up in California. You'd think that would have nothing to do with Rhodes, of course, but in a weird way, um, there are congruencies. The first one is that we're all human beings. And in, and in this more narrow sense, we're Jews. And in the third sense, well, there's water, which is in common between Rhodes and California. <laughs> and so when Stella started to tell me the story of her life, I, I had an affinity for what the setting was like. Of course, she grew up in the th 20s and 30s. 
a, a, you know, a planet away from where I grew up, but I could project into it and have a sense of the carefreeness of her childhood um, when she was a young girl. But of course, there was so much for me to learn. I really knew nothing about Sephardic Jewry or very little. I knew nothing about the Jewish community of Rhodes or very little. And I knew very little about Stella and her life. And that was part of the fascination of this journey was I was starting from fresh, fresh, and so was she in a way in telling this story. And, you know, many people, Stella is a survivor. The story does take us to Auschwitz at the midpoint. Uh, many people who've had that experience have, as we all know, given beautiful testimony, have told their stories, retold their stories. Stella hesitated and resisted doing that for much of her life. She did at times appear in documentaries. She made the odd school visit, but she never sat down properly to tell her story at any length. And I think this lended, it lends itself to a kind of freshness in this experience, both for her and for me, and I hope the reader. And it did something else, of course, which is interesting. When we met, she was 92 years old. She's turning 100 this spring. This allowed her, I think, to do something that was very urgent in her, uh, in her, a, 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 an almost urgent need, if I could say, which was to look back and come to terms with the events of her life and the world that she'd been born into, which was erased basically effectively in one day in July of 1944. So I do want to get back to the story of Rhodes, but I want to first ask, you said you went to her with one question. You want to tell us yes. what that one question was? <laughs> well, actually, it, you know, that's sort of the shorthand version of it. But I, you know, we met at a lecture, fittingly, I now see in retrospect on the subject of memorials to the Holocaust and how you make them and what they should be doing and behaving and saying and what they should look like. And um, she, we had a fairly provocative conversation and Stella is a provocative person. Uh, she makes you think, which is wonderful as she herself thinks before she answers questions. And she did start very little bit to talk to me about her experience, both in the camps and in the Judea which was the neighborhood where she grew up on the island of Rhodes. Well, I'll tell you a tiny bit about that in a moment. And we had turned out we had a mutual friend in common. You know, the mechanics of it are that she'd written a little something that she was going to give a talk about. I write about this in the book. She wanted me to help her correct her English, which didn't need so much correcting. And we did that. And then I said to her, you need to tell your story. She resisted. I asked a question. She answered. I asked another question. She said, come back next week. And that's how it began. Yeah, she began you... really, the specifics are that she began to tell me about her remarkable grandmothers, one in particular. And I was so intrigued by them. You know, I'm fascinated by this idea of what Henry James called the visitable past. It's this wonderful phrase he used in a novella in which... Uh -huh. Yeah, it's so great. And I've thought about it a lot all my life because all my life I've been fascinated by older people, by people who have a long view and a long vision. And the quote in James goes something like, you know, through these, through these encounters, you can reach out and touch the past. And I do very much feel that I had an experience like that with Stella, that sitting with her over those six years in her living room in Greenwich Village, speaking to her in Italian ex almost exclusively with some Judeo-Spanish Judeo thrown in, 
really transported me back to this world that was so vivid and of course faceted, historical, dynamic, fragrant, um, colorful. Was it, it was just one of the great experiences of my, of my life. So you said you spoke to her in Italian, which we understand you live between Italy and the United States. Where well, not you... only, not only, I mean, the first, the first things to say, I mean, I, I have no way of knowing, I never know who knows what, you know, about roads. <laughs> and so we know nothing. Let's assume nothing. And, you know, it's fascinating to me. I go, I travel in various places across this country in Europe. And I often say to people, especially in Italy, but also here, what do you know about the island of Rhodes? The, you know, there's a sort of standard answer about the ancients, the beach, the Colossus. And then I say, do you know that it was an Italian colony? Even in Italy, they don't know that, it, it, that Rhodes was won in an Italo-Turkish war as the Ottoman Empire was disintegrating in 1912 and became an official colony in 1923, the year Stella was born and remained a colony through the war. Do you know that there was a, a storied Sephardic Jewish community there that had been there roughly, let's say, since the Jews, Spanish Jews, were expelled from uh, Spain in 1492? Nope. Do you know what happened to those Jews in July of 1944? No. And so I kind of begin with those basics, you know, which were basics I had to learn, which I think everyone should know. And then there's always this pause where I remind myself and, and everybody that, you know, we're 80 years nearly from the end of the war and stories are still emerging that have so much to say to us, in particular in this case, about a pocket of people living so far removed from what was happening in Europe that when they were deported, theirs was not only one of the latest, but absolutely the longest of the deportations measured by either geography or time, three weeks door to door, so to speak. Quite a remarkable thing when you think about it. Definitely. Um, let's go back to, since we're talking about the basics of roads, you said you're gonna mention the, you're gonna talk a little bit more about the Juderia and um, I, I'm gonna, talk she talks about it a lot and that that was um when you left the Juderia you don't really feel like you belong um, uh yes right okay that's a whole, there are lots of things to say about the Juderia is a neighborhood where these Jews settled now there were Jews on uh, roads in the ancient period and throughout the years but this vast migration let's call it of these immigrating homeless expelled Sephardic Jews eventually when they reached Rhodes, ended up dominating the previous strands of Judaism. There were Greek Jews, there were, there were other people who were there. They became the dominant culture and practice. Um, they all lived together, never in a ghetto, it should be said, but by choice in the same way that the Turks lived in the Turkeria, the Greeks lived in the Greek neighborhood. Um, the Jews had this neighborhood within the ancient walls of the city, which had been put up by the Knights who had been there. Those are the Knights of Malta, but at this point in, in Rhodes. Um, and they lived uh, in shared houses, often in houses, meaning that they were buildings that were not freestanding, that, that had shared common walls and had often 
common courtyards and terraces that opened one to another. The architecture of the Juderia is important, the lay of the land, I think, to know, as Stella has often told me, doors and windows were left open. People would hear each other singing. They would smell the food that other people were cooking. They would exchange lots of gossip. They would see when young, dynamic, maybe more adventuresome women like Stella and her certainly even more adventuresome older sisters came home late at night and with what young man or with what friends. So there was this, the public, the definition of public and private space was quite different to the way we think of it. Her uh, paternal grandmother who lived with them basically never left the neighborhood. She went from home to the synagogue and back home and she sat outside on a bench that was built into the wall and saw the world go by. She was so, uh, we would say naive, but lived so fully in her world that when the first tourists started visiting the country in the 30s and came from Spain and spoke Spanish, which was close enough to the Judeo-Spanish of, of, of Rhodes, she said to her family, oh, they're all Jews, <laughs> which is hilarious. She had no concept, this woman, in her naivete, that Spain existed, which is just mind-boggling when you think about it. Stella's other grandmother was a far more worldly woman. She was one of the old women who were healers um, in the Judidia who practiced homeopathic and spiritual cures, who went to the Holy Land annually to try to die. She never died. She came back and continued practicing her cures. She was, a, a, a in fact, an example of a, a a more open-minded woman in many ways, deeply rooted though she was in the tradition of her culture, that uh, said a, a lot of, that, that this, she served as a real example for Stella in the way she thought about her own life. That's a long answer, but there's so much to say about the Judaea. One other thing I think I, I think I could say, and that also expands to the community, is that of course, for young women, the expectations were fairly modest. Uh, the, in the, the generation of Stella's mother, who, however open-minded a woman she in fact was, there was no expectation that these, that these young women would go to any, have any form of higher education. By Stella's generation, the smart girls, among them Stella's older sister, the bookish and intellectual Felicie, would go study at the Italian Catholic high school, which had a much more rigorous system of education, very different from the, the Jewish schools in the neighborhood and originally some of them established by the Alliance. Um, no one, only one young woman that Stella knew of left the island to be educated abroad at the Sorbonne in her case and became a teacher. Stella, however, as early as 14, influenced by the sense of openness that came when the Italians settled, uh, sorry, colonized the island, and we can talk about that in a moment, cooked up this idea that she was going to go to university in Italy. And that set her markedly apart from her peers, I must say. And then, so I think you're describing something, and I got this also in reading the book, and one of the reasons I thought it was important to have it on the New Books Network at, as a piece of research is that Yes, we know that the Holocaust decimated this really um, live community. Um, but even before that, there was a transition happening. And you, you talk about uh, Stella longing for the world that was and the lost world, yet I'm not sure what world she's um, longing for since 
there's this whole transition happening even before. Exactly. Well, that, that's very perceptive. Um, I don't know if she longs for the lost world so much as longs to recapture and tell its story. Let me just say that. But yes, Stella grew up in this moment, a pivotal moment of transition on the island. So she was born into the world where the, the, these grandmothers, who, by the way, she never saw undressed, she never saw with their hair down, even though all the, they all bathed at the Turkish baths on Friday night or Saturday morning, except Friday night or after, Thursday or Friday night, sorry. You know, they, they, there, were, there were things about the world she grew up in that were very much rooted in the 19th century. The baths, the, the communal ovens where they took their dishes to be baked. The fact that there was no, because they went to the baths for a reason, there was no, uh, there was running water, but there were no showers or bathtubs in individual homes. Just in the years just before Stella was born, and, and still functioning in her own courtyard were wells where people went to take their water. So you're, you're living in a world there were horses, there were still uh, uh, horses and buggies in, in Stella's day driving along with taxis. So that one, it looked backward in a certain direction and forward in another. But when the Italians colonized the island in 1923 and things decidedly began to change. It was the Italians who brought in running water just on the lowest level. They took administrative control of the island, which through the fairly uh, delicate equilibrium uh, out of whack that had existed there economically, um, many Jewish owned banks and businesses started to fail. Things shifted on the political front, obviously, because they were now an island ruled by fascists, though not at that point yet overtly anti-Semitic. That comes later in 1938 with the racial laws. But they brought in also a point of view about culture and possibility that was very different. They introduced cinema language. The schools changed from French to Italian. They brought in medicine. They brought different foods. They brought ideas. What could a young woman like someone like Stella do, in fact? Stella would never have thought, where would she have gone to university? Now she knew she's going to be educated in Italian. She would go to Italy to study, to, to have higher education. These are all ideas, openings in her world, people, Italian men and women, friends of another culture, a different religion, a different kind of social life, a different kind of awareness of what there is to read, listen to, sing, eat, and experience that put her at this very pivotal moment where she grew up in a traditional family and a traditional neighborhood, yet there was the world outside of the Judea, both literal and figurative, that was very attractive to her and formed her so deeply as well. One of the scenes from there that I just really related to was the all the teens coming together at this communal oven. And it, to me, it's like this teen hangout at the communal oven. <laughs> exactly. And that was a, a fascinating. I mean, I think it probably existed in the same way in her mother and grandmother's day, although it's hard to imagine her grandmothers with their velvet robes and toques like everyone <laughs> teenagers, exactly. But um, that is interesting. But that, and that, that group of friends stays very solid throughout. It should be said that in these years, the years of Stella's youth in the pre-war years, and certainly in the war years while they still could, many, a great number of the young men left the island. They went to seek their fortunes abroad in America, in Seattle, uh, in California, in Rhodesia, in Congo. 
they set up these beachheads and others and businesses and other men would follow them and then they'd come back and through matchmaking would find a wife and then take the wife the young woman away and so their community in the in Stella's formative years began to shrink and so two interesting things happened she made friends with Italians and she also made friends across her age group which she keeps coming back to because I think when you're very young as we all know you, you're friends with the person in your of your age and in your class not with your older sister's friends mm -hmm. but then as there were fewer and fewer of them everybody mixed together, which I think helped, uh, was a, a mature, you know, helped Stella mature and also helped grow her up. Um, yeah. Many transitions at work in this young woman's life, many formative changes going on in the world around her. Absolutely. And one of the other um, contributing factors was the different uh, economic levels and she, going to the yes. Italian school, she crossed that. Exactly. She, she not only, well, I mean, she made it to friends with Italian girls, but there were also Jewish families who had moved out of the Judidia who had done very well in business. They, you know, the girls who arrived at the school with a car and driver, for example, you know, whereas Stella and her friends from the neighborhood, there were about six of them, would do a, take this 30 minute walk, walk across town to go to school. Um, there were very poor people in the Judidia. There were middle-class and upper-middle-class people. There was a range as anywhere else. We're talking about at the time of the deportation, more than 1,700 people. It had been many more in the years before the war. You have all colors and types of life there, absolutely. And one of the things that also struck me was that, um, for example, when uh, Matsliach tells his sister not to do the traditional morning practice of uh, ovulating in public. And so it's yes. like upper echelon wanted to break with tradition at least. Yes, yes, I think, I mean, they still came up back to the neighborhood to attend synagogue and funerals, for example, often with their car and driver, and they'd stay for you know a glass of wine and, and, a, and a snack afterward. But um, absolutely, that's like a, such a powerful moment when the aunt is basically told, come inside, this is not how we do things anymore. You know, there were all of these transitions going on. There was Stella's father who wore a fez to work because he was basically Turkish in all of his orientation. They, they lived a la Turca, as they call it. The island was Turkish. It's customs, the way they furnished their houses with three sofas, the way they sat on the floor was influenced by the local cu culture. The father wore a jalaba at home. He wore the fez to work until the children were embarrassed by him. Our father's too old fashioned. They bought him a Borsellino, which I think he wore once, you know. He would never be seen at the beach because men of his generation didn't do that. Just like old women of the, of, of the grandmother's generation, like never put more than a toe in the water. Whereas Miriam, her mother, in one of those big bulky floaty full dress bathing suits, loved the sea and did go swimming. And then you have Stella and her sisters basically in bikinis, you know, hanging out on the beach. And that's what I mean, coming full circle to where I began. I can, I, there are echoes of cell life that I can understand. And when I'm being a little bit um, ironic, I call Rhodes the Malibu of the Mediterranean <laughs> because it was a fun, loving, pleasurable place. Stella, they had a cabina on the beach. They lived on the beach. Their childhoods, their childhoods were lived outdoors with their friends in the sand, in the sea. Stella was an amazing swimmer as a young woman. She was athletic. She was robust. 
She was fearless. All of this, I think, had a lot to do with how and where she grew up. And the fact, let's not forget, that she was the seventh born of her family. And we know how rugged those children are by the end. Right. You have to fight to get what you, you want. To, and what exactly. You so. And the parents are so tired. You know, they, oh, this is the thing I meant to mention earlier about uh, also about transition that's so important. Uh, not only did young women, not only were there limited expectations for the ambitions, education, or we'll forget even profession of young women, you turned 14, 15, you sat down and started in on that trousseau. That's what the young women of the Judidia were doing. Stella saw her older sisters do it, not Felici, the intellectual who had absolutely no interest in marriage, but Renee, her next oldest sister, yep, 15, let's start sewing. And Stella took one look at that and said, never. And, and she never did. And marriage, you know, traditional relationship, long-term relationships have not really interested her in her life. Although she was married, she knew it wasn't for her, which is fascinating to know that as a young woman in 1930s Mediterranean culture, where that is what you are intended to, to do with your life, was really quite surprising. Right. And she seems to have all the different, uh, all the different women within her family. <laughs> Yes, exactly. She's got, and that's well put. Yes, she's got everything from the grandmother who's, you know, confused about what it means if you speak Spanish, uh, to the one who travels the whole world, to her rather, I do think, free thinking, modern thinking mother who was opposed to gossip, for example, who was opposed to criticizing other people's daughters, who uh, did not have a problem when Stella made friends or more than friends with Italian men, who, uh, herself eventually as as the world changed ended up going for walks and on saturday even to the cinema on the sabbath you know very interesting change there um and then you have stella and hers and her you know in the next generation and where they're not going to be bound by though they are deeply formed by and in tune with these traditions right i think that's important that feeds into who they are as well of course but Going to the next transition, of course, we get to 1938 and the ra racial laws. And we definitely, from your telling, we see Stella's strength and her chutzpah, for lack of a better word to say it, um, that she decided to ask for things if she didn't have them. And she stood up for people when she could. And to me, in the book, it seemed like um, that the fact that she did that made it hurt so much more when the people around her didn't. So when she went back to Rhodes and did you feel any of that resentment in her? That's interesting that you frame it that way. Um, maybe I should just back up a tiny bit and just give a sense of what happened Please. in 1938 in the fall under Mussolini. Uh, as I think we've all, most of your listeners will know, that there, a series of racial laws were issued restricting uh, the freedoms, the civil rights of the Jewish Italian citizens, something that's still, I fear, probably not as widely discussed as it could be. And it, they extended even to Rhodes, which was Italian territory. And so Stella, just as she was on the eve of a starting high school, the step that she needed to take before she could go to college, of course, she was kicked out of school, period. And this, she said, she's told me more than once, she experienced as a wound, a hurt, unlike anything she'd had in her life before, because it, it 
closed all doors overnight on her future and made her feel, as she says, like an animal. Um, her father had to take on an Italian partner to continue his business, which began its slow decline. Uh, for a time, because Rhodes was different from mainland Italy, these Jew Jews were forbidden from attending the social club, the cinema, the beach even. Um, some of this relaxed after a while because again, they were far from mainland Italy. The kids went back to the beach. They re-entered the cinema. They never again went to the social club. It was a, a very checkerboard uh, of uh, enforcement, but the most central one was that Stella was kicked out of school. And then I think a beautiful example of what you're, you're bringing up, um, happened and it says so much to me about who Stella is or was then. Shortly after she was kicked out of school, she was in a library, sorry, in a bookstore browsing. And as someone pointed out to me already, that says something about who she was, right? She was in a bookstore where she struck up a conversation with a man called Luigi Noferini, who was a one of the teachers at the boys version of the Catholic school that Stella would have attended. And he knew what had happened, of course, and asked her what she was going to do about her education. And she said, I don't know. And together they talked and came up with this plan whereby Nofredini and several of his colleagues whom he eventually enlisted would meet with these Jewish students after school in the evenings and help them continue their studies secretly, in private, illegally, of course, and this is what happened. Stella was the only girl among the group. There were five or six boys. And for two years plus, she went to basically private homeschooled high school, which is a remarkable thing when you think about it. And this is one of the many examples I think of Stella thinking outside of the box, as we would put it, thinking for herself, seizing opportunities when she could. Um, you know, all of this lays the ground for work for that inevitable question that gets asked that I personally feel is unanswerable. But, you know, how did she manage to survive the camps? Are we going to look back at gestures like this, behaviors like this? Maybe yes, or maybe it was luck, or maybe it was a combination of, obviously, it was a combination of the two. Yeah, my grandfather says that all the time. He doesn't know or he did say it, sorry. He also survived Auschwitz and would say, I don't know where it came from, but it just came out. And it sounds very much, it, it came up in my mind as I was reading about Stella. You know, I, I spoke to someone who's like a scholar of the, you know, and interviewed thousands of, of survivors. He said, they all say it was luck, but he, <laughs> and, 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 but that that is not credible to him because it can't be just luck. It doesn't work like that. We all know that, right? You, it's, it's a million tiny decisions all day long. And, you know, you turn left instead of right. You eat this instead of that. You, you know, you align yourself. And this, I think, was key. We're jumping ahead in time, but this is how the conversations go. You know, you align yourself and build with friends. In this case, the five young women from Rhodes formed a solid group and they looked after each other as a, like a little mini Juderia, if you will. They shared their food. Someone went hungry so someone could get a pair of trade for a pair of underwear or a sweater. Um, they took turns sleeping in the better part of the beds, which were so packed. You know, they picked the lice out of each other's hair. They buoyed each other. They sang each other to each other. Um, they supported each other. They laughed. You know, there are things that Stella's told me about that period that remind me of how 
much once humanity clearly helped in, 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 in that context. But I'm getting ahead of the story anyway. Yes, 38. No, that's a, good. So I'm going to pick up on what you're saying. Sorry, go ahead. One of the things that, that you spoke about now and also is this connection between the five girls um, and language played a big part in uh, the yes, camp. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. This, in fact, was the first thing that Stella told me that night when we sat down next to each other, um, when she basically told me that French had saved her life. And how had that happened? Well, where did she get her French is the first question. And what languages did they speak? So the, backing up one step further, her mother tongue, of course, is Judeo-Spanish, which is the generally accepted way to refer to the Ladino of Rhodes. Uh, the older siblings went to the Alliance um, so they spoke French and the younger ones sort of picked it up from listening in on their older siblings and studying it as their foreign language at school, even after the Italians took over, eliminated the French system of education, imposed the Italian one. So Stella grew up in a family, I just try to imagine this, where the, at home they spoke Judeo-Spanish, the sisters spoke French and studied in French, the older ones, the younger ones spoke in Italian and studied in Italian. The father used Turkish at work. The mother picked up Greek because she had Greek friends. And of course, everyone understood biblical Hebrew. No Yiddish. You arrive at Auschwitz and Yiddish is the language of the place. And they did not know who these people were or where to put them. And basically rattled off all the possible languages that they could speak, finally settling on French. And this is where the head of the barracks, uh, her barracks, um, Stella, I think it's in a way did her a kindness, these young women, a kindness by putting them with the women from Belgium and France, who being Ashkenazi Jews, spoke Yiddish and enough German or a stund uh, could understand through Yiddish enough German to know what they were being told to do, which orders they needed to follow, how to find their way through this alternate reality that they so abruptly found themselves cast into. And as Stella says, this is how French saved her life because she could communicate and she could understand. And one of the things that surprised me as well is that she still has this affinity for Italian, even though the Italians essentially are the ones who deported her. Very complicated relationship because she it's a has to be by nature, I think, and I think we could all understand this as sort of love-hate, if that's not too simple way of putting it, relationship, because she grew up in an Italian world that was two things. It was an opening from her neighborhood, from her small island life. It opened literature to her. It, it, it When she had their nights, the evening school with the professor, it, 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 it just burst open her mind. Poetry, novels, movies. Um, music, dancing. On the other hand, she's growing up under a fascist regime that's going to end up dooming her community and is Italian. And But the language she still feels most comfortable in, she says to me, is Italian now because it's the language she spoke most deeply and re read and wrote as a, a young woman, a child and young woman, sorry, a middle schooler and high schooler. It's the one that has so formed her brain and personality. It's a very complex uh, relationship, to be sure. Is she happy about the, what the fascists did to the Jewish citizens? No. Uh, are there things about Italy and the way Italians behaved during the war? Of course not. 
when she arrived in Italy, did she feel Italian? She and her group of young women, young friends from Rhodes were, she thinks, probably the first, or if not among the first, Italian Jewish women to return, in quotation marks in her case, to Italy after being liberated from the camps. Why quotation marks? She'd never left Rhodes until she was deported to Auschwitz. Isn't that the craziest thing? And Italy, which she'd been studying in history, in art class, in, in English, I'm sorry, in, in her Italian literature class, was the place to know, to see, to study Florence, the Renaissance, Rome, the ancient world. This was something she'd waited all her life to do. And look how she got there. Yeah, I'm trying to be um, sensitive to Stella's story as well, because as you repeated a few times in the book, she doesn't want her story to be the Holocaust story. There's much more to it. And one of the things that you focused on for a few pages is the wedding process in uh, Rhodes. And I love that that was kind of this island of different beauty. Um, and especially as she herself, like you said, is was not interested in marriage. So what made you really expand upon that story? With Listen, the, here's the thing. When you're when talking to somebody who's trying to give you the story of her life and her world, you have to follow where the conversation goes. In the same way ours is meandering, I hope, in a nice, nice enough way today, mine was still covered all kinds of ground and wove in and out of every topic. And it it could be who she was thinking of in the weeks, the week in between when we met. It could be someone who called. It could be a photograph she came across. It could be a new memory because one thing she learned, and I think we all know, is that the more you remember, the more you remember. The more you start excavating in there, the more things come up. And one of the great festivities of her childhood, even if she evolved into the person who had a certain, you know, bracketing policy, let's call it question marks around the institution of marriage. She was still a young girl who loved to see beautiful brides and, and go to the baths with the bride and watch her uh, be, have henna paint, painted on her hands and, 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 and taste the wonderful sweets that all the women of the neighborhood spent you know, days preparing because they were incredible cooks there with a passion for sweets in particular. All of that mesmerized her as a child. And they were very public, these weddings. There was a procession from the synagogue to wherever the party was going to be and, and to the synagogue from the various houses. The gifts were often, uh, I find just such a wonderfully antique thing to have seen. Can you imagine, you know, carried through the streets on people who were hired to carry the gifts to, through the streets. So you would see the grandmother's silver being passed down or the trousseau, the famous trousseau that, you know, spent, that they spent years sewing. Um, all of this enchanted Stella. And you can feel, I could feel her enchantment. And yes, you know, just to, to acknowledge what you said earlier, Stella very much wanted me to know what this world was that she'd come from. And I wanted to honor that. And I also felt, of course, one of the reasons we're interested, I'm interested in Stella's story is because of this terrible turn it takes at the midpoint and how she came to terms with this tragic loss of her family, friends, and community. But I think it's all the more resonant, I hope for the reader as well, when you're first immersed in that world that you're about to see destroyed. 
it just changes everything, I think. And it makes so much sense that as she's winding down her life, Stella wants to, needs to go back to revisit rescue and, and, and share the details of this world that formed her so powerfully. I think it's important for all of us to understand the world. This is part of the greater Jewish mosaic. I mean, people don't know about it, like you said, and I think it's wonderful that you told it. But I want to get to something a little disturbing after she finally gets uh, freed from the camps and she's back in Italy. And then they're waiting for their, uh, for with her to join her siblings, sorry, in the U.S., and they apply for a visa, and I'm going to quote the response. The Mrs. Levy will have to wait their turn on the quota list. The fact that they have been interned in a prison camp does not give them priority for entry. That, to me, just hit me. I mean, yes, the Holocaust I was waiting for, this just hit me. When she's telling you this story, what was her reaction? What was your reaction? Yeah, well, it's a very timely question. I think we're all been, we've been watching most of us the Ken Burns documentary. And so it's sort of forward in our thinking these days about the complex relationship America had in the post, well, during the war as, as is depicted there, but also in the post-war period. And just to back up a tiny bit, when the family was deported in July of 44, they were down to two children and two parents. Um, her just, the, the older sister Felici, the intellectual, had been the last to leave in 1940. Um, and that left Stella and Renee. The father who had, they, the, the way this community worked was people were very generous and they tend to share their resources. So their father had uh, basically paid for the, the passage of a couple of his nephews. Um, what his his firstborn son Morris went as was typical with his with his aunt and uncle. Um, opening a parenthesis here, Stella and Renee never met their older brother. He left before they were born, which to me is just a, one of the more remarkable things in this story. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> excuse me, Stella's father did apply and try at a certain point to bring the family to America to join his older children, all but one of whom lived there at that point. And he was denied then because they were too large a family or so it was said. Now we jump ahead to the letter that you quote and to your uh, reaction, which I understand and share. <clears throat> but I think first we need to remember what the world kind of looked like in 1944, 1945 and later, you know, first of all, Stella had no papers, it's not like you bring your passport to Auschwitz, right? So she emerged from the camp and basically got a ride to Italy with an American soldier on a Jeep. This is, you know, this is how it goes. Mm -hmm. And they kept looking for a town where they could find a Jewish community. Very interesting that that was their first impulse, like, let's go find Jews. And uh, they eventually did. They eventually ended up in, in Florence, where the teacher I mentioned earlier, Luigi Noferini, with whom Stella had more than just a friendship eventually in time, uh, was waiting there to help them. Help them do what? Well, they needed papers. They needed documents. They needed to apply. They wanted to go see their family, obviously. And the letter you read 
with that fascinating air of fact describing the camp as a prisoner of war camp, which is the thing I find even, you know, it's all haunting and disturbing, but even more disturbing is how little understood at whatever that casual bureaucratic, you know, typewriter moment was. Mm -hmm. But imagine making that mistake. It's like, that is a really revealing mistake. And yeah, it took them more than a year before they were granted permission to go to their family. It's brutal. But, you know, they were, I mean, there's a, there's really no but. I did, and we have to imagine the thousands of people who were displaced, who were homeless, who had no money, no means, you know, uh, the joint distribution committee, uh, committee at least made it possible for them to live in a pensione, who gave them, you know, helped help fund their time living in Italy. Stella made good use of it because she traveled, she saw the survivor members of her community by intent or by accident who ended up there. But of course, her, their longing was to come to Los Angeles, to go to Los Angeles and meet their brother and their siblings again, to be reunited a scene that it just, you know, I find just shattering to, to imagine at Union Station in Los Angeles when they first come together. So I mean, picture, picture the fact, imagine the fact that you have a family of seven children and there's no single memory, no photograph, nothing that captures them all in one place at one time. It's quite remarkable. Yeah, you did mention that in the book. And yeah, yeah. you paint a great picture there, but maybe the question that I asked uh, actually plays into the next question I was gonna ask because Stella said to you, you're asking questions that don't make sense to that time and that setting, which is basically what you just said to me. Yeah. Um, yes, exactly, <laughs> yeah. You have to be very careful because, you know, we are very informed now, right, about what happened then. And we think we know what life felt like then, but we really don't. That's the truth. And so listening to Stella and having her correct me and adjust me in these ways um, has always been, you know, not always fun on a personal level, but absolutely appropriate, though, on a philosophical, let's call it one. Um, I'm grateful to her for encouraging me to look at some of my automated responses, let's call them, you know, my unthoughtful responses. I did ask her repeatedly, how could you not know what was going on? Not in a blaming way, but really trying to just imagine, again, I'm going back to Malibu of the Mediterranean. I grew up in Los Angeles. I've often wondered, I do wonder, especially in the climate we live in now, like when, you know, it's the same question we all ask, I think a lot of us, what would we have done? These questions, what would we, were our, would our perceptors have been as activated as we think they would have been? You know, how could anyone take them away from the place that Stella described, still describes as her own little piece of the earth? That was their land, their place, their world, their island. Yeah, for generations. That's- For, gen for five centuries, you know, the, these new, newly arrived Italians, with their ambition for a colonial presence, which was very much caught up in, as I understand it, you know, this young, relatively young country's need to try to develop itself on the model of these other European nations. All of them had colonial colonies. That was a way of having power and showing, and of course it fed their economies or millions of their influence global, many, many reasons. But this, this hankering of theirs for this island led somewhere pretty unpleasant. 
So you mentioned that they couldn't, they didn't have a family picture, they couldn't, they didn't have those memories. And yet in the book, there are many illustrations. What made you decide to put in illustrations? What's significant about them? Wonderful question also. Um, so we began by talking about the way I like to think about this book is as an encounter. This is not Stella sitting down and telling you Stella's story. It's Michael sitting down and listening to Stella and then telling Stella's story. And, and I stress this because I'm translating not only, of course, from English, sorry, from Italian to English, but from an older person to a younger person, from the memories of one human being to the ability of another human being to listen, absorb, research as necessary, I hope with a, an appropriately light and I hope correct touch, and then retell the story in, in a different order from the one in which he heard it. So it is, there is interpretation at work here. And I felt that to drop in photographs would was too literal a response to Stella's story, a sub, visual support to Stella's story. And when Myra Kalman, who knew about Stella and the story, offered to paint uh, paintings, to make paintings based on the photo, few photographs that did survive, I thought this makes sense because it is in its way another encounter with Stella's story. So there's a, an active interpretation there. And Myra is very sensitive and she picked up on things that and conveyed things that I don't think I was able to even as well. The color, for example, and vibrancy of pre-war roads, the texture of daily life, the clothes, they're all very viscerally conveyed in Myra's paintings. And I felt it was an appropriate match for the book. Where did the photographs come from? You might want to know. We have to think back to those siblings who left. And of course, what would be tucked into their suitcase, but a couple of pictures, but haphazard, hardly systematic. Stella as a girl, we have maybe five or six images with big gaps. Very few of her as a teenager. Why? By that point, her siblings were gone. You know, so there's, it's a very spotty record of Stella visually in those years. She goes from being a baby, a toddler. Um, there are, there are one or two pictures of her on the beach taken by somebody else that managed to survive and boom, that's it. So we talked a lot about you telling the story. What changed in the way you see the world now that you were really immersed in this story for six years and more? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I should say I've been, I was writing other books, living my life at the same time, but little by little, <laughs> but and a part of, well, I say that because, you know, unbeknownst to me in a certain way, little by little, this experience seeped into me, you know, and I, I just working that out for myself now, you know, I, for one thing, every time I read about the war or watch anything about it or look at anything made during it, interestingly, my mind goes to Rhodes. It's now my point of reference. I'm not from there. These are not my people. But now I, in a way, I feel like I am from there. And to a small degree, they are my people. And I know when I see what's going on, for example, just to pluck one at random, you know, that Matisse is sitting in the south of France and making one of these beautiful, colorful paintings in July of 1944. What does my mind go to? What Stella was doing in July of 1944? And it just blows your mind. And so in that way, um, I've been influenced. I've heard from Stella many, many, many of the 14,000 proverbs that one scholar captured after the war from the surviving members of those older generations from Rhodes. They had a very, 
ironic way of seeing the world. They used humor a great deal. Um, I find myself thinking about that language often. I find myself just so deeply grateful to have spent the time I did with Stella and to have traveled back in time with her and to have been able to introduce her to my now 17 year old daughter so that she too has had a taste of what it's like to know firsthand someone who lived, yes, through the Holocaust, but as much so also who came from a world that was so transformatively different, so, so transformingly different than the one that she, she, my daughter grows up in all good things. Definitely. And it definitely frames the way we see the world when we do this type of deep dive into somebody. Absolutely. Um, so I do want to mention that Stella Levy was an active volunteer at the Americans Party Federation. So there, she definitely had an influence on org, our organization as well. I want to make sure that everybody here knows about the uh, upcoming book talk at Congregation B'nai Jeshurun in um, New York. And I'm excited to be there and hopefully um, Stella will be there as well together with Michael and uh, everybody here should sign up and come because it should be a very interesting experience taking from this to the next step in person. And at November 30th at seven o'clock is worth saying easily Googleable. And yeah, there'll be beautiful Sephardic music from Daphne Moore, Stella, me, questions and answers. Excellent. And then you can pose your own questions as well, I'm sure, at a certain point. Absolutely. And so now, as we always ask at the end of our talks, what can we expect to see next from you? Hmm. I'm working on so many different things. It's uh, I don't even know where, know where to begin, but um, I am working on two books, actually. One is uh, about five objects that for one reason or another, I ended up rescuing in the course of my life, family objects. And each one is a window into a story of Jewish immigration um, and how people were forced, my ancestors, to leave places and build new lives in new places. And they each, I think, have things to say about the American Jewish experience that maybe we haven't heard as much about before. I've been a little inspired by Stella in this to look for the things that, yes, are right under my nose, but also that I haven't heard about. Just to give you one example, my great-grandparents were uh, pioneer Jews who homesteaded in North Dakota in 1885 as part of this fascinating and quite well-documented community known as Painted Woods. They were brought over in, is, as an idea of let's get these Jews out of the tenements of New York City and make farmers out of them. And this to me is just the most remarkable story. Uh, and my way into that story is through a basket made by a Native American woman who gave it to my great grandmother when during one brutal winter, she was starving and my great grandmother had a few extra potatoes. And so this object opens up just an incredible journey for me into my to the past of these people whom I know a little bit about, but also their community. And that's uh, one book at hand. And the other is I'm, I'm writing a novel based on my, uh, the life of my paternal grandmother, who was a Stella-like figure. So Stella seems to be influencing everyone, an iconoclast in her day. She was born uh, in the Northwest, attended college at Reed and Berkeley and ended up working in Hollywood as a, a, a assistant a story editor rather to Louis B. Mayer at MGM in the 40s and 50s. 
And I'm fascinated by people, but in particular women who in that period, the early years of the last century, found ways to invent or reinvent themselves and their families and didn't follow the obvious paths. And I find these stories very dramatic and I think they have a lot to say to all of us today. Sorry, a long answer, but that's my- No, I'm fascinated. Nobody online can see my face, but my eyes are bulging because I'm excited to read those. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you. We're definitely excited to see that and we're looking forward to hearing more from you. Um, And so I just wanna let people know Again, look out for um, for Michael Frank talking at Congregation B'nai Jeshurun in New York, seven o'clock, November 30th. Be sure if you want to hear more about the greater Jewish experience that you listen to the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience podcast, Reclaiming Identity, on Apple, Spotify, Google, and on our website, instituteofjewishexperience.org. Thank you, Michael, so much. And I look forward to seeing you November 30th. Thank you so much for having me and to everyone who's listening.